Vale from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebold. Last week was the 150th anniversary of Mark Twain's revised catechism, a vicious satire of the financial titans of the Gilded Age, which appeared, and I think this is the funniest part, in the money market section of the most popular paper in New York City, the Daily Tribune, where the men lambasted in it couldn't possibly miss it. What is the chief end of man, Twain asked rhetorically, answering, to get rich, dishonestly if we can, honestly only if we must. Appropriately marking this sesquicentennial was the finale of the fifth season of Showtime's Billions, a show which, much like Twain's work from the 1870s, centers on the mutually avaricious relationship between financiers and politicians. In addition to being one of the most incisive representations of capital in the 21st century, Billions is a notable artifact of the COVID era. The show was in the middle of its production schedule when the lockdown started in March of 2020. The first seven episodes of season five aired that spring, but episode eight didn't appear until 15 months later. As we discuss, this was an almost insurmountable challenge for the showrunners, writers, and cast. Joining me for this episode are two esteemed commentators on financial form and trash culture. Anna Kornblue is the author of what is thus far the best, and one of the only, critical essays on billions titled 50 Billion Shades of Grey, and published in LA Review of Books in 2018. She is professor of English at University of Illinois, Chicago, and author of Marxist Film Theory and Fight Club, Realizing Capital, Financial and Psychic Economies in Victorian Form, and most recently, The Order of Forms, Realism, Formalism, and Social Space. You may remember her from her participation in our GameStop Roundtable this past spring. Devin William Daniels is a PhD student in English at University of Pennsylvania. His essay, Kill the Body and the Head Will Die, Realism, Capitalism, and the Financier, recently appeared in the journal Meditations. He co-hosts the podcast, You're Tall But I'm Standing in Front of You, on cultural detritus of the 20th century. For more about our guests and links to work mentioned in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash billions. The Gilded Age, Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner's The Gilded Age, the novel. Have either of you read it? No. No. It's not important for this. I have this theory about the Gilded Age that it's premised on the question of whether capitalists corrupt politicians or politicians corrupt capitalists. And based on what we know about who wrote which parts, Charles Dudley Warner went into the composition process with the intention of writing a kind of libertarian parable about how the spirit of entrepreneurship is corrupted by the interference of the state. But Twain, in his contributions, purposely muddied the waters, not because he wanted to defend Congress or anything, but because he wasn't comfortable with the didacticism of Warner's initial intent. And so what we get in The Gilded Age is a novel onto which readers can fairly easily graft their pre-existing political sympathies. 
if they tend towards the progressive, they can say, look at how the capitalist class steals from taxpayers, co-ops the good intentions of the government government and corrupts elected officials. If they tend towards the libertarian, they can say, look how state power is just a veil for elected officials to enrich themselves and regulatory arbitrage interferes with the just operation of the free market. The critical reception of the novel, and you can read about this in greater detail in an article called The Neoclassical Twain, if you like, but the critical reception of the novel indicates that even scholars have consistently read the novel as a confirmation of existing positions, existing biases. And I think that about that a lot when I'm watching Billions, right? Mm. It is kind of the Gilded Age for the new Gilded Age. It's There's this chameleon-like slipperiness in which finance bros can watch it without having their worldview tested too much. And anti-capitalists can equally watch it as an object lesson in what's broken about our current system. And to some extent, of course, all narrative is susceptible to this, but Billions Like the Gilded Age seems to be self-conscious of these competing audiences and kind of feeds them at select moments with things like Axe's John Galt, Gordon Gecko type speech at the private academy earlier in the season, or, you know, the revelation that Mike Prince's great fortune is, you know, built on a great crime you know, for the Balzacian socialists. This is part of what Anna is arguing in 50 Billion Shades of Grey. What I'm curious about to get us started is whether the show's relationship with moral relativism is more than just a thematic, but Mm -hmm. operates on the level of form and method as well. Mm -hmm. I think, for instance, of the employment of Ben Mesrich as a guest writer for this season, something like the relationship between Twain and Warner, where they bring in this guy who actually believes Axe's bullshit and glorifies it. So before we delve into the details of this season's arc, I was hoping you would both talk a little bit about the peculiar appeal of this show for scholars who are interested in structure and form. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great question. The formal things that immediately come to mind about that, first of all, are the ensemble nature of the cast, right? There's the dual protagonist structure, as it were, the great rivalry. And then that gets kind of triangulated with Maggie Schiff in the first season. And then it just sort of quadradulates out to like the dad and Taylor. And then Prince comes in the fourth season, you know, and the oligarch sort of hanging in the background on the third season, right? So there's a number of places of audience identification or a number of places of your attention to rest. There's a number of kind of interactions, right? Of course, the show is famous mostly for the glad awards it's gotten for having the first non-binary character right so there's so i think the ensemble nature of it which is about the firm in a lot of ways and Mm -hmm. lends itself to ambivalence ideologically you might say but also the persistent funding model of this being a show that only airs once a week (laughs) and in structured seasons I think that's 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 crucial to what kind of narrative is able to develop and the need to pursue a broader audience as opposed to some of the kinds of tailoring and um, customization we might see in more streaming content. I'm coming off of doing three episodes on the chair. And part of the reason I wanted to do this as an epilogue is because I do see these shows in some ways, the funding model you're talking about, they are sort of in direct conflict with one another, right? That the, Mm -hmm. the chair I understand as a kind of narrow casting model 
Whereas, mm -hmm. as you as you put it, like Billions has to aspire to a kind of old form of television. The dual protagonist structure that Anna refers to, it's visually registered on the show every week, right? In that opening uh, credits where you have Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis's names. Paul Giamatti's is on the left, but Damian Lewis's is higher on the screen than him, right? So mm -hmm. it's like this kind of visual attempt to have neither person technically out in front. And I think that's in some way what both makes this show formally very much in the tradition of classic prestige TV, if we think of like Sopranos, Mad Men, Breaking Bad. But I've been thinking too, especially since uh, this final season about what separates it from those. Mm -hmm. Right, because I think of like the classic prestige TV show, I think, you know, we can use Sopranos as an example, is so structured around the psychology of the protagonist. You know, most obviously in Sopranos, like we literally are seeing his therapy sessions. That's obviously something that Billions is very much still about. Obviously, like Wendy being the Axe Capital, like house psychiatrist, and then also the like kind of character that links Axe and Chuck together. It's it's a theme that the show takes on very directly. Yeah. But I also think if you go back to the show's beginnings, it's very much set up as like these two dueling psychologies, right? And this kind of cat and mouse game, they're always playing with each other. But I think especially as it's been going, and I, I've been really thinking about this since uh, this most recent season, plot has actually been serving as a formal device. You know, we might think of like plot as sort of like the content that's distinct from the form. But I feel like in this show, it initially presents itself as we have these two individual psychologies in competition with each other. But especially as the show has kept going and going and this cat and mouse game has kept continuing and becoming more and more complicated and more and more intricate. And I think we especially saw this in play in like the last two episodes of this season. The decisions these particular characters are making are just increasingly delimited by the plot itself. At the end of the day, the uh, characters are making the decisions that the plot has presented them with. They, they're making the decision that the sort of like game theory has led mm -hmm. them towards in a certain sense. And I think there's something really interesting there with how the show is formally capturing something about capitalism, right? And something about the individual psychologies of viewers too, right? Whatever side of this competition you're on, you can see yourself placed within that giant plot machine. And that can serve a conservative function, right? Because it justifies the actions you've taken. I, I did what I had to do. But I also think that gives us a more accurate picture of how capitalism actually works than one that's rooted in whether individual people are, are good or bad and what their what their uh, personal ethics is. The homogenizing tendency of power seems mm. to be a major theme in this show. As Taylor gains more access to the tools of power, their ethics erodes. And even with the Mike Prince character, who I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of criticisms of, the theme is the same, right? That as the lust for power grows in him, his sense of personal ethic erodes, right? And we have in this season, Chuck trying to sort of refashion some kind of personal ethic. But it always comes up against his lust for power. Devin, you bring that connection to The Sopranos, and I wanted to sort of see how Anna would follow up on this. I, I think you're right that in some ways, 
Billions is alluding to and drawing from and reflecting upon this, this sort of famous moment in prestige television. But Maggie Schiff's character is a mediator as opposed to a therapist, right? Mm-hmm. And I wondered if Anna had some thoughts about how the show's use of that device or that kind of character changes as the role of the psychologist is different within this corporate setting from what it is even in the corporate setting of The Sopranos. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of tempted to say, following on these very interesting observations from both of you guys, that there's actually a kind of de-psychologizing over the course of Billions. Mm -hmm. What becomes very interesting is that the move from this Shakespearean problematic about power corrupting to actually this kind of depersonalized, automatized, compulsive, game-theoretical playing out of things that actually doesn't seem to have a lot of psychological substance that gives us this, you know, just kind of really stupid repetition across, I think, what feels like the dilated quality of the later seasons of this show. The Maggie Schiff function there, compared to Dr. Melfi, is interesting. Like, the role is not the production of less suffering vis-a-vis one symptom. The role is not the acknowledgement of the unconscious. The role is the fluffing, harnessing of this pure repetitive instinct to game it out, you know? And then the more she becomes a character in the sense of the positioning of her that I think the show is really ambivalent about, but as a kind of node of trying to complicate the rivalry when the rivalry doesn't work anymore professionally, Uh right? That seems not a strictly (laughs) doctor function, but also that she's not given enough space of her own. You know, she is, Uh she's a professional functionary in a different way than Malfi is. It's not the kind of completely absent analyst, I think. I do think it has to do with a, a different acknowledgement of desire and a different acknowledgement of the unconscious and a, like then a different way of thinking about capitalism, which I think Devin is right, like has to redound back to sort of these fundamentally different business moments and economic practices between the Sopranos <laughs> and Billions. And the other thing we might think about, about, you know, the classic prestige question, um, and I have to figure out how to exactly yoke this to the psychological, but I think it's really true, is that we have the continuity with the workplace problem of like, what is it to be a professional? And, you know, and so power corrupts, but that's because everybody's trying to be professional. Everybody's trying to be good at their job, right? Everybody's smart every, and they're all doing the game theory quadruple crossing or whatever. What is it to be good at your job is, a, I think, a prestige era, a question. Mm-hmm. And as Billion sort of is made over the course of a period that becomes increasingly defined by streaming instead and original for streaming content it's almost like that professionalism doesn't it falls out of the picture i think these distended later seasons there's no game in terms of like the really interesting hedge activity really in them mm-hmm. it's all vendetta right <laughs> mm-hmm. um but the vendetta is pictured as a subjective gambit that is related to the professional drive but it doesn't have the, any professional content in it the whole thing again Prince doesn't at all, right? Yeah, I think that as Axe Cap's bottom line shifts more and more to the Taylor Mason side, which we are told is the, you know, the automated quantitative side, 
mm-hmm. we are taken outside of the you know the trading floor outside of the office more and more wendy rose the maggie shift character is a great example of this where she's kind of having to take on a very different role her original purpose was to essentially pump up these traders, give them the confidence they need to take the risks that Axe needs in a previous tr- a trading model. Mm-hmm. In this season, she becomes the kind of personal attache, eventually becomes embroiled in a romantic relationship. But the use of the artist character, the Tanner character, to Mm. sort of show her need to get outside of the office in order to sort of to flex her muscles, right? Her Mm -hmm. her professional capacity is shown again in her ability to sort of get his work going. It appears she no she no longer is needed in that capacity, or at least not as often Mm -hmm. when she's back at the office that makes a lot of sense and connecting it to tanner i hadn't thought of is really good because uh it makes me think about just again over the course of the seasons what has sort of happened to the minor characters in the show most specifically those traders mm-hmm. people like what is mafi ben kim dollar bill right there's mm-hmm. all these axe cap employees who are essentially this like assemblage of different quirky personalities You know, the idea is essentially that they like each have a sort of different angle of approach Mm -hmm. that is very personal to them. It's their particular personality that Mm -hmm. allows them to motivate themselves in a particular way towards generating capital. Right. And as you say, like Wendy's job is essentially to manage those quirky personalities. And as the show's gone on and we think to the last season that those characters were almost exclusively depicted in this season as a unit. I'm just thinking of how many shots there were of just like from the top of the stairs in Axe Cap down at them, Mm -hmm. where we're seeing them all in the screen as once. And, you know, they're getting their little one liners for laughs, right? But their individual agencies are no longer affecting what Axe Cap is Mm -hmm. doing at all. Or looking out the door of Taylor's office. Mm hmm. And there's sort of this implication that the traders out on the floor have become sort of dinosaurs. Right. The real vision of the firm has moved inside this second phase. Yeah. Right. Which is the girl phase, right? I mean, it's extremely mm-hmm. interesting that not yes. to underplay the down the non-binary status of Asia's character, but like it's the women over there who have this new quant way of doing things, right? That is just sort of like sheer <laughs> calculation, but then with the mm-hmm. social justice veneer on it. And then that's the kind of like obsoletizing of the guys in the pit, you know, as if their isolation in Connecticut already wasn't that. <laughs> but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's strange. I think that we really can see some ways that the finance business seems to be changing, sort of intricated in this show with, I would think, the way that the television business is changing. And so, mm-hmm. again, I think kind of dilated, boring, repetitive, and unprofessional quality of the last two seasons seems to me <laughs> obviously just, you know, distorted by COVID, but brought about by pursuing the show for the sake of pursuing the show. Mm-hmm. Now with this revelation we have today that Damian Lewis is leaving and that they knew he wanted to pull back and that the whole introduction of Prince as this Moby Dick mm-hmm. or whatever <laughs> <laughs> character, this whale that we're going to irrationally pursue. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. seems to have been motivated by the desire to just keep the show on. 
Mm-hmm. And that's much more a kind of streaming continuity, homogenous plotlessness. The one season too many is something that we've seen on several occasions recently. I can think of with like Superstore and The Office where the crucial actor backs away and yet this show wants to carry on for a little bit longer and that leads to a disastrous final season which in a sitcom may not be as big a problem as it is in this show which because of some of the structural elements we've been talking about has promised a kind of resolution that the sitcom form never promises, right? Or we began the show with Axe and Rhodes in direct competition with one another, and this sort of promise that their collision would either be the finale that resulted in both of their demise, that was would have been my guess, or that one of them was going to you know, triumph over the other, right? The show has very much promised that formally throughout, and not getting that because of you know the unforeseen circumstances of you know Lewis's wife's illness and now his stepping away and then covid in the middle of all that this show has has the potential to really fall flat in some maybe in the same ways that game of thrones did a few years mm-hmm. ago right where what it was promising could not be realized once the show sort of took on this this second life but there's something amazing about that unrealizability if it had mm-hmm. concluded with that Right. Mm-hmm. Right. There's the fic- the fictitious fantasy that is the premise of the show that Chuck Rhodes and the Manhattan and Preet Bahara and so on have actually prosecuted corporate malfeasance and that caused 2008. Right. Like, a, mm-hmm. and that they've done it like many, many times. The sort of promise of either justice or like the the billionaire keeps his way. Mm-hmm. The non-resolution of that that might just be sort of how things are, right? Yeah. But I think that the desire to keep the show going, which is about the li- the value of its product, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is then introducing these kind of other, I think maybe less interesting and not really quite politically as attuned questions. Like, can you be a socially conscious billionaire? Mm-hmm. That's the Prince question. But then it's like, why is Axe so professionally melted by his obsession with friends. Mm-hmm. That's a less interesting structural question about capitalism than the first mm-hmm. three seasons. Yeah, it does feel like this, the incentive here was to, with the Prince character was like, okay, so the Taylor Mason character, I think took off in a way that maybe they never anticipated. Mm-hmm. And Prince, you know, is introduced almost as a desire to fuse the Axe character with the Taylor character mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. create this kind of Frankensteinian mm-hmm. version of what has been working for them. I like your Moby Dick illusion because <laughs> it, it does feel as though they're chasing something mm-hmm. with that character that is going to be the show's sort of undoing. At the level of performance too, right? Mike Prince is such a flat and like affectless character. Mm-hmm. He reads the lines like they're being recorded for a public service announcement or something. The show's failures are almost making the point it was trying to make in a more artistic way, maybe, right? This arc Anna has traced from prestige TV to the more like algorithmic streaming TV. The show had the possibility, if it ended in this moment of dissolution, as Anna was saying, of like offering the like quilting point that would make that 
what the show was about. And instead, just through the like extra diegetic need for its own continuance, it's maybe giving us the same point, but we're almost going to like overdose on it, right? We're getting, it's, it looks like mm-hmm. an entire new season where we're being sold. Mike Prince is now the opposite number to Chuck. And mm-hmm. it's hard for me to imagine how that could be sustained successfully. Can the triangulation work when one of the points upon which it depended is substituted at this late stage? I mean, I like the idea that you you both sort of offer up that maybe the appropriate end to this whole show would have been that moment on the helipad where we were being told or led to believe, not that any of us probably actually believed it, that we're about to have the thing the show has been teasing from the very beginning, right? That Chuck's going to arrest Axe and charge him and we're going to get the trial, the judgment, right? And the show predictably you know, has a twist at that moment. Maybe the best thing would have been for us to not know where that twist goes. Mm-hmm. And with right. that, yeah. The non-fulfillment of that promise, as you called it, that is a smart insight about this kind of sheerly machinic, repetitive drive of the accumulation that the show is mm-hmm. dramatizing. The problem is, like, is capitalist drive, even when it's in its irrational moments, like the whole Prince plot, is it interesting narratively indefinitely? Mm-hmm. Right. Because I have to say, I don't tell me what you guys thought. I thought this season was kind of boring. Mm-hmm. That was despite the fact that it had like ramped up the ca- quality of quadruple crossing. Everybody's a mm-hmm. game theorist playing out everybody's move. Everybody's beset with sudden, what's that? Aristotelian word and ignore right? Like this sudden revelation all the time is like, oh, it was you, you know, um, like there's like 70 moments of that, of these kind of, yeah. but nonetheless, it was, it was boring, I thought. And some mm-hmm. of that is the COVID sets, you know, like that they couldn't mm-hmm. be together and they, they really filmed it almost all in the Connecticut office or whatever, or the stage that's supposed to be the Connecticut <laughs> office. You know, the kids aren't there anymore. Like the families are all irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Did you what do you guys think? On one level it seemed like the show was putting the like game theory mind bendy aspects of it of like trying to keep track of the double and tr- triple crosses into overdrive, but ultimately the entire season and this entire really long Rube Goldberg machine that was really kind of like one long continuous con was structured around a withholding of information, which was this belated revelation of uh, Janine Garofalo's supposedly legal weed company, legal marijuana company, having broken the law and purchased illegal marijuana from Mexico, right? And this is the thing Axe doesn't know the whole time, that it turns out is the cause going to be the cause of his downfall. But we as viewers are not privy to that information either. So there's really no capacity for us as viewers to even judge the moves that are being made. And obviously the show has always involved a certain amount of withholding of information. The problem is it's not just that we're seeing access side, but we're seeing a like auteur's decision to give us like this limited slice of Chuck side 
that we're not actually playing the game with them anymore. We're just kind mm-hmm. of witnessing something happen from afar, right? And so I think that's part of why it just never felt as engaging because we couldn't even think we did know what was going on because the show was telegraphing the fact it was withholding something from us. And so it kind of just became this process of, okay, but obviously we know they're trying to trick Axe. So when when are they going to tell us what the thing they haven't told us is and what is it going to be? I agree with everything that you both are saying. And I think the episodes that were most interesting to me and that I've thought about the most since watching were ones that came early in the season Mm -hmm. and particularly the kind of bottle episodes, the limitless one that was about the basically pharmaceutical speed that turned out to be not the limitless shit, but the good fellowship, right? Or the one that was where you had the sort of dueling academic plot lines where Axe is trying to get his kid out of trouble at the private academy while Chuck is, you know, trying to gain some prestige through a lectureship at Yale. Even the Opportunity Zone episode I thought was really interesting. In all those cases, those were sort of self-contained storylines that were integrated loosely. The other one was the Davos men episode very early in the season at the, you know, what what do they call it? The mic or whatever. Mm -hmm. Those episodes they were related to this evolving effort to get a bank and what was Axe working towards there. But they they were all very self-contained and they did the thing that Billion sometimes does well, which is sort of draw our attention to some element, some sort of peculiar element of financial malfeasance uh, and sort of play that out with these characters. All of that really just disappeared in the back half of the season. And I wonder to what extent that was a narrative problem from the beginning and to what extent that was a response to COVID's disruption. And we essentially get these sort of two seasons, the latter of which is filmed and produced under less than ideal conditions, and which seems in many ways disjuncted from what they were building in the first half of the season. To yeah. Talk about like what, what COVID does to this. Yeah. And how you deal with that. Super important to try to track that out because this is one of our first great artifacts of COVID deforming TV and COVID deforming the narrative. You know, we have the things that seem to have been shot on Zoom or the things that seem to be, you know, all bottle episodes because they were conceived sort of to be filmed in COVID. I think that's how we have to understand in certain ways, like both White Lotus and Nine Perfect Strangers, for instance, like they're just in these super contained quarantine pod environments. So here the mystery is sort of like, did they really throw out these other kinds of narratives? And is the pressure that COVID put on the kind of demand for content, basically, right? Like that everybody exhausted everything that was good to watch. And it seemed very likely that almost nothing could ever be forthcoming again if people couldn't film anything and they couldn't hang out in their writer's room. And also, what if writer's room dynamics can't be replicated Mm -hmm. on zoom right like when you need to be really playing out and if you listen to Koppelman talk about his process right he's like deep into stuff like he and his couple of dudes might like invent a character and spend an entire day like while they eat lunch and while they whatever just like saying like oh and then where did he go to high school and then what did he do and then whatever and then like years later they might integrate that guy into a show or something like that like I think that was the, the hard bob yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. Like, so what's the, 
if COVID makes it so that the writers can't have any synergy with each other, much like we've all suffered, that teaching on mm-hmm. Zoom means mm-hmm. that you can't read the silences, you can't see the body, like, like mm-hmm. it's not happening, right? Because there's not that energetic charisma of playing off of each other and inventing something together. I think it's really messed up. So did they really chuck narratives that they felt like they couldn't pursue because they were going to try to film in quarantine conditions? Damien Lewis is like on a screen by himself the whole time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That can't have been for plot reasons, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. It was he stuck in England, I think, or whatever. Like mm-hmm. I, I didn't read enough about that, but um, yeah. And if if one yeah. of your two headliners has to be confined to quarantine for the back half of the season, they must have had to throw stuff away, right? And, right. Yeah. Right. So then you sort of get the drive to produce anyway, or to optimize the value of the show, or to salvage the value of the show, where it's just simply incompatible with the condition the possibility for production or for working at much again like our forced injunction to continue teaching despite the fact that it is Mm -hmm. impossible when our children are at home and when our students are not with us you know anna when earlier you you asked about like does just watching the process of capital make compelling narrative this back half kind of answers is like no right there's that uh really on the nose image which i have to admit it was it was not on the nose enough for me to notice it, but my partner pointed it out to me after we watched last night. But uh, one of the final shots of the finale last night is the worker scraping Axe's name off mm-hmm. the wall, but leaving the word capital. So we go from having Axe capital <laughs> to having capital. Mm-hmm. That Axe capital, like that phrase is kind of what makes the show work. Watching the process of capital work in a clean robotic algorithmic sense is not interesting right but watching it have to negotiate its actual instantiations in people's lives and people's embodied experiences right can be interesting right and axe was this character that was able to make what should just be a sort of easily hated easily dismissed finance guy compelling and the kind of texture that makes someone like that compelling it's clear comes from like collective work writers working together uh actors playing off each other that's where those kind of like medium tempo moments in a, in a show come from and mike prince is sort of for me becoming almost so bad it's good <laughs> version of this because he just shows what it, if that is completely evacuated it's actually not interesting just to watch someone do the moves mm-hmm. If there's no grace with going from step one to step two, right? It's just sort of like algorithm activate, mm-hmm. double yeah. cross axe now, double cross Chuck now. Mm-hmm. Viewers, I don't think can love Mike Prince in the way you could love Axe. Like in spite of myself, right? I'm a Marxist. Mm-hmm. I'm watching this show and I'm finding myself compelled by this guy because like he is a human being at the end of the day, right? Like there's uh, oh, but he's also a again. nerd. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a total nerd, right? Like, I mean, I think part of what's so great in the beginning, as you're saying he's out and about and he's having, is that it's actually his teamwork trying to have ideas about where opportunities for value are, you know, mm-hmm. and their gross and exploitative opportunities, the way they manipulate it. But all those scenes where he's like 
bring me the stuff. Like who's got ideas, right? In the first couple mm-hmm. of seasons of the show, though, that is like a writer's room. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's like who heard something? Who's got meat? And then they spin it out and they see where it goes and they dig deep and then they've got illicit leads on things because my uncle said that his company was going to buy this thing and why is that suddenly a market we should, you know, and none of that kind of logistical stuff of the research and nerdery of mm-hmm. hedging, right, and of investing and of, v- of venturing, none of that is in these algorithmic processes. And that is both pre and post COVID uh, for them, but because it's a different model of mm-hmm. uh, literally, right? Where that should have been is in a kind of deep dive into banking. Mm-hmm. The plot line that should be developing and holding all of this season together is Axe trying to get a bank. And there are a few scenes in that where we start to understand like how bank charters are the nerding out that Anna's describing. I would have liked to see that applied to some investigation of what did the banking system look like in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis? What makes a difference between this type of financial institutions and other financial institutions, which generates then Axe's deep envy for the banker, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how do these things operate differently? We we get sort of suggestive elements of that, but it's never taken to the place that Anna's describing, where we're really going to get into the nitty gritty of how this institution is built and how it functions and how it erodes and that yeah that feels like a really missed opportunity like when when he starts loading the marijuana cash onto those Brinks trucks mm-hmm. we haven't earned this like this mm-hmm. scene should be really great because it should be something that culminates this drive that has bound the whole season together but i don't understand how those trucks got there Mm-hmm. That bothered me. And it, I mean, to get back to Devin's point as well, we have this parenthood theme developing at the beginning of the season where part of the reason we're capable of getting, you know, giving Axe a little bit of humanity is that we start to see his relationship to his con man father and the way that that absent father is affecting the way he treats his own kid. And that is foiled by the weird relationship between Chuck and his father that is flowing through this season as well. All of that seems to just stop. At a certain point, this sort of psychoanalytic narrative doesn't deliver in the back half of the season either. When it's just that, it feels, you know, very cliche, very stereotypical. Like, I wonder what they could have done with that if they'd been allowed to follow it through to its conclusion. We never actually meet Axe's father. That must have been part of this at some point where that guy is actually introduced as a character but he he's just gone. There's all these sort of threads that just got lost. And mm-hmm. that is to, you know, to go back to Anna's point, like that happened to all of us, <laughs> the threads yeah. of our lives. And so, you know, when Devin's saying like, maybe the way the show is failing is actually some of its intelligence about capitalism. It's like the weaknesses of this and especially these last five episodes and whatever it is that they're setting up for next season or, or can I not going to be able to sustain for next season are about the compulsion to keep on working and optimizing, even though COVID has made it so that they can't. Mm-hmm. The intervening mm-hmm. time has made it so that Damian Lewis's wife is sicker and then dead. 
and the lack of the ability of the writers to be together it's it's literally not safe right like they don't they lack the synergy of of big ideas in the writers room and yet they can't just say this is loss you know mm-hmm. much like our pandemic strategy wasn't let's yeah. just stop for a little while mm-hmm. right we can't go on pause for 18 months, right? That's just, capitalism doesn't work that way. Yeah. Well, but it wouldn't have had to have been 18 months, right? I mean, New Zealand shows us, Germany shows, you know, like, right. you yeah. could have paused a little while. Even two months, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. That's why I think maybe the most compelling moment in these final five episodes for me was the almost like Lynchian scene of Chuck making scrambled eggs mm-hmm. for Mike Prince oh. and his daughter. Yeah. Which just kept going on and on, right? Like the duration of it was interminable. And like that was sort of the show acknowledging this stasis we find ourselves in, that a stasis that persists in spite of capital's accelerations. But then that scene ends and it's followed up with the sort of forced and hurried culmination of the of Wendy and Axe kind of like confessing their yes. love for each other, right? Something that should have been this like immense earned moment that the show's been tending towards for years fell kind of flat for me. I'm spending it afterwards thinking about this scrambled eggs, right? Because I'm like, that's like, mm-hmm. that to me is more of an honest reflection of where things are right now than the plot machine that, that keeps yes. chugging along. Yes. It's the the perfect, if we're going to argue that this back half achieves something, like that's the perfect moment to point to, right? Because I agree, the scrambled egg scene is fascinating in that they even attempted to do something that like that and that maybe the attempt to do it was motivated by the conditions of production mm-hmm. and that scene has actors in the same room with one another like we're we're going to film something that is the kind of the tedium between the urgency of what they're conspiring to do and so th- it's sort of fascinating that that's then immediately followed by what I absolutely agree is this unearned climax of the the romantic relationship between Axe and Wendy that is mediated, right? They're not mm-hmm. in the same room with one another when they profess their love, finally. They have to do it th- over the, you know, FaceTime, <laughs> If we're thinking about this back half as formalizing the production conditions were, those two scenes in tandem with one another are perfectly encapsulating. Yeah, I agree about that just Lynchian quality because you just have no idea what the fuck is going on, right? This is a show (laughs) organized by the frenetic utopia of smart people talking fast, right? Like you have to watch it with the subtitles and there's so many music references and there's so many movie references and there's so much, you know, business talk and so on. And then this was just, it's so quiet and it's domestic. The daughter is there. That's the only appearance of any of the children (laughs) at all. Mm -hmm. right it's just cooking and it's sort of that joke of like if you want to make an omelet you have to break some eggs right because they (laughs) presumably that's where they've hatched the what Mm -hmm. how they're they've maybe told prince about the marijuana right because he then leaks it again right Mm -hmm. but but it is it's just extremely strange because it puts the spectator in the position of being like has has something happened here like i was sort of like sh- almost shaking the t- like is it for yeah, my yeah. stream for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. yeah. And then the FaceTime consummation, I mean, it's almost like the acknowledgement that they aren't in a relationship, right? That they only mm-hmm. have this fantastical relationship yeah. with each other and that the admitting it is no less fantastical than anything else. Yeah, it, it anticipates then the, the in the final episode. If they can't go on, like they can't even begin it, right? And so mm-hmm. it's, it, it is a kind of you know, false start. This thing that should be a consummation of five years of sexual tension, intellectual tension between them that just evaporates under the conditions of this final season. Mm-hmm. And they, they both acknowledge it and dismiss it almost simultaneously, right? Right. Right. Do you think it really is supposed to be a consummation? Like, I feel like mm. there's the audience, you know, generic expectation that we want romance, right? But this is a workplace show. Mm. <laughs> and it's a workplace show that is built around incredible savvy and incredible competence and incredible intelligence mm-hmm. and not around relationships of that kind. And indeed, you know, the whole sort of thing about Chuck's becoming more acts-like in his pursuit of acts is that that ruins his marriage, right? Um, that relationships can't hold in this place. So, like, who has the desire for Wendy and Axe to get together? And what would what is the show indulging in holding it out only to them dismiss it? I guess that's easy. It's a, it's a really good question. And one that I feel like, again, we have the jealousy plot line in the first half of the season with the Frank Rio Tanner character. And that it really works. At least it it did for me because we are seeing the way that Axe doesn't recognize his own personal relationship with Wendy until he has to see this other forum, this other scenario in which the professional and the personal are bleeding. The introduction of the way that capital flows through the art world where one and the same time these you know, billionaires are claiming this is part of my personal life. This is my personal interest. This is, you know, my aesthetic relationship to the world that allows me to escape from the doldrums of my job. But it is also another form of acquisition and accumulation, yeah. right? And it, it, it's a fraud to say that it's not both those things at once. And that's the sort of the same thing they're doing with Axe and Wendy on one and the same time, right? Yes, they are professionals, but Axe clearly tore apart Wendy's marriage to some degree, right? And Mm -hmm. he did so in part because he has, whether it's a lascivious lust for her or it's just a desire for kind of ownership over her as his friend and confidant and advisor and consultant. And he he desperately needs her and what she brings to the table. And he's willing to destroy her family life for that, right? The art part of this was a nice compliment to develop that. But again, it disappears at some point in the back half of the season. And we don't get to see how those set of resonances develop and explode. Mm-hmm. It So one of the things I wanted to ask you, Anna, was one of the things you develop in the 50 Billion Shades of Grey essay is the way in which Taylor's introduction into this show operates. 
the Taylor Mason character is what kept me going with this show for several seasons, right? Like it, it really gave this show a lasting interest that it might not have otherwise had. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you is how you felt the Taylor plot line. I was kind of expecting something from it in this season that I didn't, I didn't get. Yeah. <laughs> How to feel about that character, which, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, part of the show's esteem comes from the fact that they handled Taylor's character in such interesting ways and provided this critique about the brodom of finance through the introduction of a non-binary character who is, you know, in many ways, more competent than anybody else. I found it very confusing, that whole plot line and the the character's trajectories or lack thereof, because on the one hand, the sheer capacity for writing these algorithms and running things along in this way um, and having a vision and then having a vision that also belongs with Mike Prince in terms of you know, what doing green investing might be or what do, what doing more socially conscious environmental investing might be. It has not just a clinical intelligence to it, it has a dimension of feeling to it. But then this kind of just ineptitude in the interpersonal relations or the willingness to completely knife them um, seem like a different version of the monomania than Axe has, right? Again, perhaps algorithmic, but like somehow almost autistic. Yeah. Axe is at least passionate when he's like, oh, this isn't going to work for us because like I have to knife you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Taylor is not that. But I found it hard to predict like what was actually going to happen in these conversations with the girlfriend mm. and with the girl protege and with Wendy. And I can't tell if that is like genuine dimensionality. Or if it is just incoherent. But I think that the conflict between Taylor and Axe was really promising. And to have that displaced into the conflict between Axe and Prince for the Mm -hmm. sake of installing Prince as a new protagonist, Mm -hmm. really disappointing. Because maybe Taylor should have carried the next season of the show without Mm -hmm. any of this. I agree with that. I, I kept wondering... What is Prince doing? Why do we need the Prince character? Why couldn't the Mike Birbiglia character that has a lot of the same qualities, like, why couldn't Mm -hmm. that be the character that fills the necessary Prince roles and doesn't force us to introduce this new big bad in season five Mm -hmm. that in many ways is disrupting the need to, like, make us care about this, this additional character is disrupting the characters that we already have investment in or that we already care about. And what does he have that the Berbiglia character doesn't already have? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that character has established relationships both with Axe and with Taylor that would mm-hmm. presumably allow all these plot lines to unfold more or less identically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like Taylor is among other things, like, as a character, they critique the broiness of finance, but they also show the flexibility of finance to incorporate other modes of subjectivity into itself. Then, you know, Billions, the show, was presented with this extra diegetic problem that was outside of its control of, like, Damian Lewis stepping away from the show, uh, at first stepping back and now, like, actually leaving. What's so weird is that the show had already kind of solved its own problem with Taylor, right, of showing a different way for the subjectivity of, of capital to, to, to keep mm-hmm. moving, right? So mm-hmm. 
so then why does it, and I'm kind of just restating the question we've all been saying, right? But why does it instead feel the need to like summon what is essentially like a simulacrum of acts in Mike Prince, but then also in terms of Taylor's arc, instead of having them ascend to a new level of the plot, they're mostly spending this back half in kind of a pedagogical relationship with a new employee, which mm-hmm. is basically like coaching a new version of Taylor, right? So the show is like engaging in these repetitions of itself mm-hmm. in a way, like showing the reemergence of subjectivities it's already developed. Yeah. In this right. kind of hollow, you can't do modernism twice kind of way, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of following its own kind of like internal logic. So like, wh- why do you think it felt, both of you, why do you think it felt that need? Anna, I think, answered the question mm-hmm. to some extent yeah. earlier when she says like, it's it's trying to siphon off just one more extra season of value or two more extra seasons of value. Like it has popularity, it has ratings still, or it, it did. The back half has not had good ratings. You know, it wanted to hold on to that capital. And in so doing, it was just reproducing itself in ways that actually ended up kind of inflationary right that the, mm-hmm. nothing had had as much value as it once had yeah, but i do yeah. think you you introduce a great term there which is appropriation right like when this season started like and i do think koppelman and levine believe in the david fincher model which is like you instruct your audience through the first scenes of a show or a film and, and if you remember at the very beginning of the season we have Axe and Wags in the tent on the ayahuasca trip, right? That is both spiritual tourism that we associate with the billionaire class, but also they're trying to get the handsomest shaman for their pharmaceutical grade <laughs> ayahuasca. And so it's very clearly this, you know, cultural appropriation plot line. And right before that, we have Chuck at his father's wedding to an indigenous woman. And it's this kind of, mm-hmm. you know, fusion of the New York elite wedding with some sort of native traditions, right? And so we have this idea of cultural appropriation that runs through, and it includes Mason Carbon coming back into Axe Capital. It includes the opportunity zones, right? And the use of Franklin Sacker as the sort of figurehead, right? That there's all these cultural appropriation plot lines throughout the first half that I thought those were going to culminate in a way. And I guess they do in that Prince appropriates Axe the mm-hmm. same way that Axe had appropriated Taylor at the beginning of the season. So, so we do get that tidy arc, you know, coming back at the end. But again, I felt like what they were building in terms of the sort of layers of the appropriation metaphor kind of fell away by by the time we got to the to the final episodes it's sort of a problem about cycles of accumulation mm-hmm. cycles of incorporation mm-hmm. and capitalist drive right i mean mm-hmm. um the sh- why did the show think that it couldn't lead without a big swinging dick of finance to use Michelle, yeah, yeah. Phrase, you know, um, uh, yeah. a frequent guest on your show, great financial reporter. So why did it think that Taylor couldn't carry 
you know, a Showtime show, yeah. I think is a real question. And then it said it leaves us with this repetitive algorithmic <laughs> boringness, you know? Yeah. Um, so where is incorporation, appropriation, integration, uh, heterogenization, differentiation, diversification, right? Where is that capitalism's dynamism and where is its monotony? Where is it its yeah. um, monologic, you know? Um, and yeah, so the yeah. kind of tension between that stupid, machinic, compulsive, repetitive character of the drive to accumulate and and then the globalist, expansive, incorporative, roving, heterogeneous topos that seems different from that. Like that tension is capitalism's antinomining yeah. right? It's so right that in the performative aspect of the show, it is absolutely clear that Asia Kate Dillon and Maggie Siff can hold their own with Paul Giamatti and Damian Lewis, right? Like, you know, we, we start the show with those two poles, but they become four poles by like, you know, the end of season three or whatever. And so why couldn't, as Damian Lewis moves away, why couldn't you keep that, that sort of triangle, right, with these characters that we have investment in, that clearly the actors can carry the weight of the performance and the weight of the story, the need to reproduce acts, mm -hmm. it, as opposed to letting acts become a kind of dinosaur, allowing this kind of figure to be replaced by the sort of creative destruction of capitalism, right, that that in its place comes the sort of the green, you know, non-binary, right? That this algorithm. Is, you know, yeah. The, yeah, algorithm. Yeah, exactly. I, I feel like the show would be better off if that were the case. But I also take your point that like, in the end, that reproductive model is also a reproduction of heteronormativity, maleness, whiteness, mm -hmm. etc. Right. And that this happened is in some ways revealing that capital is coded in all these other ways mm -hmm. that don't allow Taylor and Wendy to just assume the role of acts mm -hmm. because they don't possess the other characteristics that are necessary to belonging in that elite mm -hmm. the show itself is kind of you know it's a speculative enterprise right it's making a risk assessment when it makes this decision right and it ultimately goes for the lower ceiling higher floor choice in prince you know, which almost makes me think back to what we've been talking about with the conditions of production for it, because like the same kind of like knowledge that diegetically in the show allows acts to make these high risk, high reward moves was the kind of knowledge that we were talking about is gained in the tangible aspects of the show's production, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's setting up a final season, even though we now know it will be a final season that has acts in a, a very limited, if not entirely absent capacity. What is a satisfying resolution to, for me at least, it's been an aesthetically and intellectually challenging show for most of its tenure. Mm -hmm. What brings that back <laughs> and gives it the landing it deserves? I'm tempted to say that the economic clout of billionaires and their relationship to the ruling oligarchic class and the political structures 
are very different than when the show first started in 2016, in January 2016 now. Mm -hmm. And what would be a satisfying way for what has largely been an intelligent show to register that difference? You know, on the one hand, the extremization and just complete obliquity of the wealth accumulation during the pandemic to anything ordinary happening in terms of how people are living, or in this case, dying. The irrelevance of the market to 700,000 people dying and millions worldwide. And then the push to wield state power. It's not like the treasury hasn't been a character in this show. It's not like DC hasn't been a character in the show. So the push to wield state power actually for some minimal welfare provisions in the pandemic and, you know, in the reconciliation process, those are different energies than we had in 2014 when they pitched this show or whatever, and in 2016 when it debuted. So I don't know what narrative way I would like to see that integrated is, but I don't want to see the show completely impervious to it. Mm -hmm. One aspect I think that I would like to see the show take head on is I've kind of been talking throughout about the ways that like Prince's character is maybe like unconsciously registering some of the maybe the show's own failures the show's own limits right and i i actually think like a a good way to register some of the the changes in capital that anna's talking about right would be for the show to formally recognize prince's hollowness like intentionally (laughs) i almost want to see chuck be unable to reproduce the same kind of high he got from Axe with Prince. Mm -hmm. And maybe in that, there's an opening for some of the new directions that our political moment demands we go into, right? We can't keep playing the same game again, Mm -hmm. not just because it's not going to solve our problems, but also it's not fun anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Obsolescence and stimulation. There is this question that seems to organize our our current moment about to what extent are we living through the klepto-Keynesian moment where the neoliberal billionaires will just become the government, right? There will no longer be just the extraction of power, the regulatory arbitrage, but they will actually embrace the very institutions of power. And to what extent are we seeing the crumbling of capitalism, right? Is this the decay phase, which will, you know, hopefully result in something better. (laughs) Yeah, I I would agree that the show actually embracing that shift that's happened in the last five to six years, the market stands exposed to a degree that even in 2013, 2014, maybe it did not as an emperor with no clothes, right? I think it would have been easier to do that without Prince, but maybe mm-hmm. you can do it with Prince. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's... Well, but th- I mean, that whole problem of socially conscious investing in a green capital that mm-hmm. like also would hold to Taylor and Wendy and uh, the new the new generation and so on, that could be some fodder if that's what they sort of let leave, right? Because then it's not actually the dissolution of capitalism or the old way of doing things. It's like capitalism's own sense that it actually can solve climate change, Mm -hmm. which is not true, but... (laughs) 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 They would embrace Schumpeter over Marx, right? Yeah. (laughs) That was... 
Anna Cornblue, and Devin William Daniels. To learn more about their work, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash billions. This has been an episode of the American Vandal Podcast. From the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College, I'm Matt Siebel. We'll be returning later this year with a mini-series on the 150th anniversary of Mark Twain's Roughing It. Thank you for listening.